On the roof, the summer afternoon was drowsy with the hum of passing helicopters. Bernard Marx drew a deep breath. He looked up into the sky and round the blue horizon, and finally down into Lenina's face. Isn't it beautiful? She smiled at him. Simply perfect for obstacle golf. And now I must fly, Bernard. Henry gets cross if I keep him waiting. Let me know in good time about the date. When Lenina arrived, Henry Foster was already seated in the cockpit. Four minutes late, was all his comment as she climbed in beside him. He started the engines and the helicopter shot vertically into the air. Henry accelerated and London diminished beneath them. Above their heads, huge fleshy clouds lolled on the blue air. Out of one of them suddenly dropped a small scarlet insect, buzzing as it fell. Henry looked at his watch. The Red Rocket from New York, seven minutes late. These Atlantic services, they're really unpunctual. Lenina looked down through the window in the floor. They were flying over the six-kilometre zone of parkland that separated central London from its first ring of satellite suburbs. Near Shepherd's Bush, 2,000 beta-minus mixed doubles were playing Ryman surface tennis. A double row of Escalator Fives courts lined the main road from Notting Hill to Wilsdon. At Brentford, the television corporation's factory was like a small town. They must be changing the shift. Like aphids and ants, the leaf-green gamma girls, the black semi-morons, swarmed round the entrances or stood in queues to take their places in the monorail tramcars. I'm glad I'm not a gamma. Ten minutes later, they were at Stoke Poges and had started their first round of obstacle golf. With eyes for the most part downcast, Bernard hastened across the roof. He was like a man pursued by enemies he doesn't wish to see. Even Lenina was making him suffer. He remembered those weeks of timid indecision, during which he'd looked and longed and despaired of ever having the courage to ask her. Dared he face the risk of being humiliated by contemptuous refusal? But if she were to say yes, what rapture! Well, now she'd said it, and he was still wretched. Wretched that she should have thought it such a perfect afternoon for obstacle golf that she should have trotted away to join Henry Foster. Wretched, in a word, because she'd behaved as any healthy and virtuous English girl ought to. He opened the door of his lock-up and called to a lounging couple of Delta Minus attendants to come and push his machine out onto the roof. The hangars were staffed by a single Bokanovsky group and the men were twins, identically small, black and hideous. Dealings with members of the lower castes was always, for Bernard, a most distressing experience. For whatever the cause, Bernard's physique was hardly better than that of the average gamma. He stood eight centimetres short of the standard alpha height and was slender in proportion. His self-consciousness was acute. Each time he found himself looking on the level into a delta's face, he felt humiliated. Would the creature treat him with respect due to his caste? The question haunted him. Not without reason, for gammas, deltas and epsilons had been conditioned to associate corporeal mass with social superiority. Indeed, a faint hypnopedic prejudice in favour of size was universal. 
Hence the laughter of the women to whom he made proposals, the practical joking of his equals among the men. The mockery made him feel an outsider, and feeling an outsider, he behaved like one, which increased the prejudice against him. He climbed into the plain, and a minute later was flying southwards towards the river. The various Bureau of Propaganda were housed with the College of Emotional Engineering in a sixty-storey building in Fleet Street. Bernard landed on the roof of Propaganda House and stepped out. Ring down to Mr. Helmholtz Watson, he ordered the Gamma Plus porter, and tell him that Mr. Bernard Marks is waiting for him on the roof. Helmholtz Watson was writing when the message came down. He got up and walked briskly to the door. A powerfully built man, deep-chested, broad-shouldered, his hair was dark and curly, his features strongly marked. He looked, as his secretary was never tired of repeating, every centimetre an alpha plus. By profession, he was a lecturer at the College of Emotional Engineering, Department of Writing. A mental excess had produced in Helmholtz Watson effects very similar to those which, in Bernard Marx, were the result of a physical defect. Too much ability had made Helmholtz uncomfortably aware of being himself. What the two men shared was the knowledge that they were individuals. Three charming girls from the Bureau of Propaganda by synthetic voice waylaid him as he stepped out of the lift. Oh, Helmholtz, darling, do come and have a picnic supper with us on Exmoor. They clung round him imploringly. He shook his head as he pushed his way through them. No, no. We're not inviting any other man. But Helmholtz remained unshaken even by this delightful promise. The girls trailed after him, and it wasn't till he'd actually climbed into Bernard's plane and slammed the door that they gave up. These women, he said, as the machine rose into the air. Bernard was seized with a sudden urgent need to boast. I'm taking Lenin a crown to New Mexico with me. Are you? said Helmholtz. The rest of the short flight was accomplished in silence. When they'd arrived and were comfortably stretched out on the pneumatic sofas in Bernard's room, Helmholtz began their regular discussion. Did you ever feel as though you had something inside you that was only waiting for you to give it a chance to come out? Some sort of extra power that you aren't using? He looked at Bernard questioningly. By eight o'clock, the light was failing. The loudspeaker in the tower of the Stoke Poges clubhouse began in a more-than-human tenor to announce the closing of the courses. Leninor and Henry abandoned their game and walked towards the club where they climbed into their machine and started back. Landing on the roof of Henry's 40-storey apartment block in Westminster, they went straight down to the dining hall. There, in a loud and cheerful company, they ate an excellent meal. Soma was served with the coffee. Lenina took two half-gram tablets and Henry three. At twenty past nine, they walked across the street to the newly opened Westminster Abbey Cabaret. Once inside, the air seemed hot and somehow breathless with a scent of ambergris and sandalwood. On the domed ceiling of the hall, the colour organ had momentarily painted a tropical sunset. 
The sixteen sexophonists were playing an old favourite, and four hundred couples were five-stepping round the polished floor. Lenina and Henry were soon the four hundred and first. Five-stepping with the others round and round Westminster Abbey, Lenina and Henry were yet dancing in another world, the warm, the richly coloured, the infinitely friendly world of Soma Holiday. How kind, how good-looking, how delightfully amusing everyone was. Finally, the loudspeakers. Good night, dear friends. Good night, dear friends. Obediently, with all the others, Lenina and Henry left the building in a happy haze. Bottled, they took the lift up to Henry's room on the twenty-eighth floor, and yet, despite a second gram of soma, Lenina didn't forget to take all the contraceptive precautions prescribed by the regulations. Alternate Thursdays were Bernard's Solidarity Service Days. After an early dinner at the Aphrodisium, to which Helmholtz had recently been elected under Rule Two, he took leave of his friend and, hailing a taxi on the roof, told the man to fly to the Fordson Community Singery. Damn, I'm late," said Bernard to himself as he caught sight of Big Henry, the Singery clock. And sure enough, as he was paying off his cab, Big Henry sounded the hour. Ford. Sang out from all the golden trumpets, Ford, 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 nine times. Bernard ran for the lift. The great auditorium for Ford's Day celebrations and other massed community sings was at the bottom of the building. Above it, a hundred to each floor, were the seven thousand rooms used by solidarity groups for their fortnight services. Bernard dropped to floor thirty-three, hurried along the corridor, stood hesitating for a moment outside room three two one zero, then, having wound himself up, opened the door, and walked in. Thank Ford, he wasn't the last. Three chairs of the twelve arranged round the circular table were still unoccupied. He slipped into the nearest of them as inconspicuously as he could. Turning towards him, the girl on his left inquired, "What are we playing this afternoon? Obstacle or electromagnetic?" Bernard looked at her, for it was Morgana Rothschild, and blushingly had to admit that he'd been playing neither. Morgana stared at him with astonishment. Then, pointedly, she turned away and addressed herself to the more sporting man on her left. "You're late." Said the president of the group, "Don't let it happen again." The group was now complete, the solidarity circle perfect, man, woman, man, in a ring of endless alternation round the table. Twelve of them ready to be made one, waiting to come together, to be fused, to lose their twelve separate identities in a larger being. The president stood up, made the sign of the T. And switching on the synthetic music, let loose the soft, indefatigable beating of drums and a choir of instruments that plangently repeated the brief and haunting melody of the first solidarity hymn. The president made another sign of the T and sat down. The dedicated soma tablets were placed in the centre of the table, 
The loving cup of strawberry ice cream soma was passed from hand to hand, and with the formula, I drink to my annihilation, twelve times quaffed. Then, to the accompaniment of the synthetic orchestra, the first solidarity hymn was sung. By this time, the soma had begun to work. Eyes shone, cheeks were flushed, the inner light of universal benevolence broke out on every face in happy, friendly smiles. Again and again the loving cup went round. Then, all at once, a great synthetic bass voice boomed out the words which announced the final consummation of solidarity. Orgy, porgy, ford and fun, kiss the girls and make them one, boys at one with girls at peace. Orgy, porgy, gives release. The twelve rose and began to circle the table. Orgy, porgy, ford and fun. As they sang, the lights began to grow warmer, richer, redder, until at last they were dancing in a blood-coloured and fetal twilight. Then the circle wavered, broke, disintegrated onto the ring of couches which surrounded the table and its planetary chairs. <laughs>